Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hespler Baptist Church, located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray that this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. Good morning, church. Trust you see the wisdom of God setting aside a day for us to gather with his people, that we might have our thoughts and eyes and hearts directed to all that he has done for us in Jesus Christ, and to be together, that we might hear one another sing praises, uh, songs of praise and worship to him, to hear the scriptures, to set aside the other tasks of the week, and to focus uh, that we might be refreshed and nourished for the week that is to come. I woke up this morning with a couple of thoughts about preaching on my mind uh, that uh, I just want to sort of relay before I begin proper this morning. And the first of those is that uh, I think I heard this first from Mark Dever that, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on in the world right now. And, and sometimes you can feel uh, whether that's from others or just in your own self, some pressure to, you know, ah, should you be speaking to the moment and so on. And I like what Dever says, if you want to be culturally relevant and irrelevant at the same time, just systematically preach through the Word of God, and that will take care of it for you. And uh, I'm thankful for that wisdom. And another brother in the U.S., his comments are helpful as well, that uh, his way, our way, my way of fighting against secularism is verse-by-verse exposition, and God has given us the so-called foolishness of preaching, and so here we are in our service, trusting that God accomplishes His work in His church and in our world through the proclamation of His Word, and we're grateful for that. In 1954, David Warren of the Aeronautical Research Laboratories invented the black box flight recorder. The idea came to him during some meetings that he was having with others about the crashes of seven comets, which were the world's first uh, jet airliner, and had resulted in the deaths of 110 people. As told by the National Museum of Australia, David is an Australian and he worked in Melbourne, it struck him that the problem, as they were talking about these crashes, was that there was simply too little data. Often, the people best placed to have known what might have caused the crashes were the flight crew, but they had died. So inspired by a dictaphone that he had seen at a trade show a few weeks earlier, he wrote a memo to his manager proposing a device housed in a crash-proof container that would record not just the flight data, but also the conversation between the pilots and the cockpit. He He wrote, in investigating accidents, anything which provides record of flight conditions, pilot reactions, etc., for a few moments preceding the crash, is of inestimable value. Now, what's interesting is that it was not received with much enthusiasm by his managers at the time. But the 28-year-old, David, persevered. He developed the first prototype in his garage. And as they say, the rest is history. Flight recorders are mandatory around the world and have been for decades. And it would be difficult would it not to account for the many disasters avoided and lives spared from the insights his invention provided? Well, as we come to our passage this morning, 
I want us to think of it as like a spiritual black box, one that we pick up in the aftermath of a sinful crash and burn. There's crucial data on here to help us see what comes of thinking that we can resist God's will as Isaac and Esau did, or thinking that God's will needs the help of our sneaky and deceptive means as Rebekah and Jacob did. Yet despite their actions and efforts, none can resist God's will as we saw last week. And the aftermath, which is what we'll look at this morning, the aftermath warns us of the following. Messing with God's will leads to very messy consequences. If we try to interfere with what cannot be interfered with, it will never end well. Messing with God's will leads to very messy consequences. And though the passage is certainly not exhaustive in what those consequences might be, the four that we will explore are uncomfortably revealing and humbling and in the end ought to drive us to the cross of Christ. If we are willing to look, and I hope and pray we are, we will see much of ourselves reflected back in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah and Esau and Jacob. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth when looking back on the history of God's people, he said these things were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so may God help us pay attention that we might avoid future disaster as we learn about the mess that comes from trying to mess with God's will. But before we do that, let us pray and ask for his help, for we are utterly dependent upon him. Let's pray again together. Father, we hope and pray it pleases you that we would give our time and attention to the foolishness of preaching. For we know, for you tell us that your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And no creature is hidden from your sight, Lord, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of you to whom we must give an account. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do your work in our midst and that we would be glad to realize again this morning that you are the God who speaks. And just as we sit here in this room with one person speaking and everyone else listening, that reminds us that there is one God and that you are he and that you have spoken. And that as your word is handled this morning, I pray that by your grace, you would help us to hear what the Spirit would say to us and to our church. And so would you bless this time, Lord, with your power and with your help. For we ask it together in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Well, I invite you to turn to Genesis 27, if you're not already there. I think you see the text behind you. Genesis 27, we're going to begin in verse 41. We're going to ignore the chapter-verse divisions again. 
which is fine. And we're going to finish out in verse 9 of chapter 28 this morning. So listen to what the Word of God says, beginning in verse 41 of Genesis 27. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, and Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite woman did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. And again, brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What we've just read is really part two of the episode, of this episode in the life of the covenant family. And what be- ends with the futile marriage of Esau in Genesis 28 verse 9 really began with the improper marriages of Esau all the way back in Genesis 26, verses 34 and 35. So this sort of frames one unit. In the first half of this episode, Isaac wrongly tried to bless his favored firstborn Esau, even though God had already revealed that the older twin would serve the younger twin. And Esau, though presented clearly as spiritually unfit to receive it, was quite willing that he should have it. And then there was Rebekah, though rightly motivated, scheming for her favored second-born Jacob to receive the blessing instead. And though she worked in line with God's revealed will, she went about matters in all of the wrong ways. And so did Jacob, who surely did not need to resort to deception of his aged blind father to secure what God promised he would have. Yet this is what they did. They messed with God's will, which always leads to very messy consequences. 
The first of these is rage. When we resist God's will and it means we don't get what we want, our hearts can spit fury that can manifest in horrendous ways. Messing with God's will can lead to the messy consequence of rage. That's where Esau ended up because he resisted God's will. He was not willing to bow to God's providence. And it makes me wonder how much happier would Esau's life had been if he had accepted that Yahweh is in his heavens and he does all that he pleases. Yahweh, you plan to use my brother to bless the nations? I submit. And may a blessing come to me and my blessing the one that you have decided to bless. And when Isaac said to Esau in Genesis 27 verse 4, he called his oldest son and he said, Prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Do you know what Esau should have said? He should have said, No, my father, let me call for Jacob that you might bless him for that is the will of the Lord. But that's not what happens. Esau tries to receive what did not belong to him, and his refusal to submit only manifested in disturbing rage. Esau hated Jacob. And he said to himself, literally, he said to his heart, I will kill my brother Jacob, the one he shared the womb with. I wonder if you ever find your heart saying this about someone. God has given you what I want. I'm going to get you. And if I don't, I sure hope someone else does. Rebecca paints Esau this way in verse 42. Look, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. And I wonder if our hearts ever do this. Can we ever imagine conversations when we vengefully tear a strip off others with our words? Do we ever console ourselves with thoughts of beating the snot out of someone who has gotten in the way of something that we wanted? Does our envy and jealousy over what we do not have fuel angry and dark imaginings such as these? James puts it this way in James 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That's what Esau did in his imagination towards his brother, chosen of the Lord. But his imagination wasn't enough. His enraged meditations turned into these fratricidal premeditations, and Esau is on the brink of becoming another Cain, who killed his brother Abel in a jealous rage because God accepted Abel's offerings inst- offering instead of his own. This is how Rebecca describes Esau's posture toward Jacob in verses 44 and 45. There's fury and there's anger. The kind of anger that makes the blood boil and the nostrils flare and causes fits of rage. And what does the scripture say of this? In James 1.20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
all that, all that unrighteous anger accomplishes is to make us guilty in the court of heaven. Listen again to our Lord's teaching on the matter from the Sermon on the Mount. He said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, anger and fury and rage, these are not the marks of the Christian. In the lists of the works of the flesh in the New Testament, we find fits of anger and its close associates, enmity, strife, jealousy, rivalries, envy. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4.31 that all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Elsewhere, he says that if we have been raised with Christ and our lives are hidden with Christ in God, who we will appear with in glory when he comes put to death, therefore what is earthly in you, and he includes in that list anger, wrath, and malice. Responding with such because we don't like God's providence is to make a bad situation far worse. And I believe we really ought to search our hearts, and I certainly include myself in this as we watch what is unfolding in our world, and we have to ask, how do we, what is our poor posture towards our prime minister, or to protesters, or to police who seek to stop what is happening, and those who are for it, and those who are against it, and those who are against mandates, and those who are thinking that they were appropriate, and so on and so forth. What is the attitude? What is the posture of our heart to these matters? Even as we trust God who is sovereign over everything. In the end, as Esau is discovering here, messing with God's will by resisting only results in absolute and utter frustration. Which is a lesson that Paul himself learned when he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. This man who wrote that anger and malice and these things should be put away from us. When Jesus appeared to this violent persecutor of those who belong to Jesus, Jesus said to him, Why are you persecuting me? And he said, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? Uh, let me describe it this way. My parents have a miniature pony. And his back is maybe about up to my waist. And he lives on their property. They adopted him. And my 11-year-old sister calls him Winnie because that's what horses do. I call him Winnie or the horse formerly known as Frank because that was his name before. So it's a bit weird of a difference. And we think he was mistreated by a previous owner. So he's a bit unruly. I love horses. I spent some time riding horses and caring for them when I was growing up. So I'm always happy to go say hi to Winnie or Frank give him some treats and groom him and clean out his, his hooves and make sure everything's fine. And, but boy, he doesn't like that. He does everything he can to escape my horrible clutches. He'll try to bite me. He'll try to run away. He'll try to rear up and kick me. But I'm stronger than he is, and he likes that even less because he has to suffer my best interest of helping to try to take care of him. That's Jesus' description of Paul. Like an unruly farm animal that kicks back against the farmer. And that's the posture found here in Esau. 
who couldn't resist God's will and became furious when things didn't go his way to the point of murder. And so let this spiritual black box be a warning to us of what happens when we mess with God's will. It leads to very messy consequences. A mess that Rebecca once again tries to manage so that matters don't get any worse, but she suffers herself. In her case, messing with God's will leads to the very messy consequence of loss. This is a woman who misses out on multiple fronts. Messing with God's will leads to the very messy consequence of loss. Somehow she learns of Esau's plans. The anger in Esau's heart is so great that it cannot be contained as our Lord teaches us, and it spills out in some way that Rebekah discovers, as verses 42 to 45 tell us, the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. And so she calls for Jacob again. This is the second time in the chapter. And she tells him what's happening, and she says again, Therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban. There's a safe haven for you. Until your brother's fury turns away and he forgets what you've done, then I will send and bring you from there. And then she asks this question, verse 45, why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Now there's some really sad irony here. Rebecca's scheming up Jacob's deception is a contributing factor to Esau's response towards his twin. Now she's afraid that Esau will kill Jacob and that Jacob will be avenged, resulting either in the death of Esau or Esau becoming a permanent fugitive. Remember what God said in his covenant with Noah and to all creation in Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So if Esau kills Jacob and he is rightly punished, Rebekah will lose the twins that she waited 20 years for. And if Esau kills Jacob, and he's going to be rightly punished so that he runs away, she'll never see him again, and she'll still lose the twins that she waited 20 years for. So once again, she plays the mom card, appealing to Jacob to leave for a little while, literally a few days, until Esau cools off. And when that happens, Rebekah would send for Jacob to come back. But that doesn't happen. The little while... Rebecca hoped for ends up being 20 years. In a way, she does lose her, lose her favorite son, which would be a very bitter pill to swallow. And Esau leaves as well, which we'll come to shortly. And from this, we can at least conclude that nothing ever good comes from messing with God's will or at least trying to, for we know it is impossible. There's also a degree of loss in her marriage relationship, it seems to me. Uh, Rebecca is operating on this principle that I came across, first heard about in a movie I watched as a teenager, where the husband is the head, but the wife is the neck, and the wife will turn the head whichever way she wants. Now, don't try this at home, because it's hardly a meaningful relationship, is it? Instead of going to Isaac upon hearing of his plans to bless Esau and not Jacob, what does she do? She schemes. And then instead of going to Isaac to seek forgiveness for the sneaking around, the marriage seems damaged. In verse 46, she doesn't even 
state the truth of the matter, but rather resorts to a kind of manipulation. She doesn't go to Isaac and say, Isaac, Esau is planning to kill Jacob. We should send him to my brother until things settle down a little bit. That's not even what she says. She says, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And what she says is true. And on this, Isaac agreed, which, of course, she knew, going all the way back to Genesis 26, verse 35. And once again, she's right. Jacob shouldn't marry a Canaanite woman. Isaac should have made preparations for both of his sons by the time they turned the age he was when Rebecca found, uh, when Abraham found Rebecca for Isaac. But they're just, it just doesn't seem to be any open, honest communication about this, which is surely worsened because of her scheming to ensure that Jacob was blessed. And the farther husbands and wives move away from God's revealed will, the farther they move away from each other, and this is a great loss. Messing with God's will leads to very messy consequences. And while we are not given any assessment of Rebecca's actions by the writer of Genesis, which, by the way, is a rarity in the Bible, there is another loss that we should note with respect to Rebecca, and it's the loss of any memorial about her life. This is Rebecca's last appearance in Genesis 28. And when Abraham's wife Sarah died in Genesis 24, there was a memorial of her life. There was a recounting of her years. There was mourning and there was weeping. And her husband went to great lengths to secure a cave so that he could bury her in faith and hope and love. And it's it's beautifully reflected. But Rebecca isn't mentioned in the book of Genesis after Genesis 28 until almost near the end of the book. In Genesis 49 verse 31 and then she's only mentioned in passing. It's the scene where Jacob is, is saying to his sons the promise that they will bring his bones back to the promised land from Egypt so that he would be buried in the cave of Machpelah along with Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah. Rebekah's death is not even recorded. Additionally, Abraham is mentioned in Hebrews 11 as is Sarah and Isaac, but again, not Rebekah. And in Genesis 24, when this whole scene of Abraham uh, sending the servant to bring back Rebekah, and, and then they, 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 they move in, they marry, and it seems like the, the, the sort of torch is being passed from Abraham and Sarah, and Isaac and Rebekah are the new Abraham and Sarah, and, and, and everything has started so promisingly, and now Rebekah has seemingly ended so poorly. And she seems to just be relegated to a place of irrelevance. So collectively, in the end, her messing with God's will led to the loss of her sons for all intents and purposes, loss of meaningful relationship with her husband, and loss of memorial in the eyes of God's people. She just sort of disappears in obscurity with very little to show, and it's really rather sad. And it shows us that however good our intentions might be, the ends never justify the means, and So we should refrain from sketchy schemes that try to mess with God's will. Doing so leads to very messy consequences. Esau's continual resisting just manifests as rage. There's loss for Rebekah. And there's also hardship for Jacob. 
Messing with God's will leads to the very messy consequence of hardship. Clearly, Rebecca has struck a chord with Isaac, as she knew she would, because they both knew the bitterness of soul that came from Esau being married to Canaanite woman. And again, this has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has everything to do with the fact that these women did not fear Yahweh. So in chapter, chapter 28, verse 1, Isaac calls Jacob and blessed him and directed him, it says, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, which means house of God, your, to your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And in verse 5, that's exactly what he does. As Isaac sent Jacob away, he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. And so begins a rather rough 20-year chapter of Jacob's life where he's living in the land of the people of the east. Genesis 29, verse 1. And that's not a good directional marker as we've come to learn from the book of Genesis. And there, Jacob, who scammed Esau out of his birthright and deceived Esau out of his blessing, he himself is deceived by his uncle Laban. He worked for seven years to marry this woman. It seems like there's love at first sight for Rachel. And then he wakes up on the first morning of his honeymoon and he's laying beside her sister. And so he works another seven years for Rachel, ending up with two wives, no end of turmoil, and 12 kids by four women. And after this, his uncle tries to scam Jacob out of the prosperity that God has blessed him with. And eventually Jacob, who had to flee Esau, also has to flee Laban, which sends him right back into the path of Esau, again, with Jacob quite fearful over how this encounter is going to go. And this, this is a disaster. And that trajectory started in Genesis 27 because of the ways he and his family were messing with God's will. These are the consequences. And so those who have ears, let them hear nothing good ever comes from getting our hands dirty in this way. And yet, here's what's most remarkable and really stark about this portion of Scripture. This spiritual black box reveals something that utterly perplexes us as investigators. Jacob, the little cheat that he is, he goes with the blessing of God. With all of the scheming and deception now out into the open, Isaac rightly blesses the one God said he would work through as we hear in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 28. I, just, I leaped over them for a moment. Let's go back. Isaac says, God Almighty, El Shaddai, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. This is the language of the blessing given to Abraham in Genesis uh, 17. And it's also the language of Genesis 1, where God blessed creation and humanity. And this thread of what we're calling creation and covenant blessings, this is going to continue through Jacob. Isaac, who seems to be back on track spiritually speaking, is commended for this in Hebrews 11.20, which reads, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. 
So what Isaac says here in 28 and what he says in Genesis 27 indicate that in the end, Isaac trusted the future of his sons to God as God intended. The older will serve the younger. Isaac goes on in verse 4 of chapter 28. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And now this makes me ask, what gives? Didn't we hear Tom read earlier, God is not mocked, that which someone sows is what they will reap? So how come Jacob, who messes with God's will and makes a mess of his life, ends up with such a blessing? He leaves a fugitive, and then he returns a people. In his own words, he later says to Yahweh, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Now, in one sense, yes, Jacob very much reaps what he sows. The hardship was real. The effects of his sin felt. There are unavoidable consequences for our actions. God has made his universe to be this way. And even as his children, he does discipline those whom he loves. It's not judgment, but the discipline is there nevertheless. But there's also a way in which this reaping, sowing principle is completely reversed. God gives to Jacob what Jacob does not deserve. And we should be incredibly grateful to know this. Because in the midst of this utter mess, the grace of God, it shines forth. In the midst of sinful mess such as this, we witness that God is rich in mercy. And though, like Jacob, our hands were dirty or are dirty or we were dead or still are in our trespasses, that God is willing to have compassion upon us. He was willing that we should be made alive in Christ. He's saving us by grace. He was willing. How is this for blessing? He was willing that we should be raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. Though we are deserving of nothing but the eternal consequences of our sin, we are told from the lips of Jesus that it is our Father's good pleasure to give us what? His kingdom. How does this all add up, though? It's because of the great reversal. It's because at the cross... Jesus was willing to reap the judgment that we sowed so that we could reap the righteousness that he sowed. It's because he who was rich became poor for our sake so that through him we might become rich. It's because he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And this surely is the wisdom and power of this El Shaddai whom Isaac speaks of here in Genesis 28. It's incredible to behold. But lest we miss out on this merciful reversal of consequences, we are warned a final time 
by the spiritual black box of the dangers of resisting God's will. There's only one way to receive the covenant blessings of God through Jesus Christ, and it is most certainly not the way Esau goes about things in verses 6 to 9. In response to all that happens, poor Esau, he tries to make amends, but he only succeeds in coming across as spiritually dense. Messing with God's will hardens us and leads to the very messy consequence of dullness, of spiritual dullness. Esau is trying to work his way back into daddy's good books and back into the blessing of God, but he just doesn't get it. Messing with God's will leads to the very messy consequence of of dullness. Look at what he tries in verses 6 to 9. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite woman did not please Isaac, his father, the penny finally drops. He didn't pick up on this at any point until it's stated clearly, both by mom and dad. Then, what does he do? He goes to Ishmael, Isaac's half-brother, and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. And based on this, we can recreate the conversation that, Abraham, that Esau is having in his head. Dad doesn't like my wives. He's blessed Jacob and sent him to marry someone from mom's side of the family. I know. I'll marry someone from dad's side of the family, and maybe they will be a blessing for me after all. Terry Kidner summarizes and says, like most religious efforts of the natural man, this was superficial and ill-judged. First of all, he tries to undo an action that took him longer than it should have to register. He thinks that by marrying his half-cousin, he'll undo the bitterness of spirit caused by marrying the two Hittite women, and I wonder how they felt about that. But that's not how it works. We can't erase past sin with future deeds. Even if they weren't self-centered and sinful, which Esau's most certainly were. Second of all, he's continuing to ignore what got him into this mess in the first place. The blessing has been given to Jacob. As God said it would before they were born so that his purpose of election would, would stand And Isaac has plainly told Esau in Genesis 27, there is no blessing left for you. It's all being given to Jacob. There's no going back. doesn't matter how hard Esau cries. It doesn't matter how poorly Esau tries to mirror Jacob's actions to gain favor with his dad. It's not going to work. If Esau wanted to know the blessing of God, the only way to do so is to bless God's chosen covenant partner, Jacob. Remember what God said to Abraham back in Genesis 12? Those who bless you, I will bless. And Isaac said something similar to Jacob. 
that those who would bless him, that they would be blessed. So the only way for Esau to experience this is to bless God's covenant partner, Jacob. There's no other way. Today, we say the same similar thing. The only way to know the blessing of God is through God's faithful covenant partner, Jesus Christ. There's no other way. God sets the terms for us today as he did for Esau in his day. This is the will and way of God, but Esau's dull of heart and he doesn't get it. And this is a warning to us, lest we miss out. Esau reminds me of formalist and hypocrisy in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. People who are formalist is like the person who does all of the outward things but knows nothing of God's power. And the hypocrite is someone who does all the right things and doesn't believe a lick of it anyway. And on the way to the heavenly city, the main character Christian sees these two men come tumbling over the wall on the left side and onto the path. And they immediately came toward Christian and Christian asked, Gentlemen, where did you come from and where are you going? Formalist and hypocrisy replied, We were born in the land of vain glory, and we are going to Mount Zion, where we expect we will receive both praise and honor. Christian replies with a question, why didn't you enter by the gate that stands at the beginning of the way? Don't you know that it is written that he who does not come in by the door but climbs up some other way is a thief and a robber? Well, formalist and hypocrisy answered that to go to the gate in order to enter into the way was considered by them and all their countrymen to be too inconvenient and roundabout, especially since they could shorten the journey by simply climbing over the wall as they had done. But won't this be seen as trespassing, Christian asked? Don't you think the Lord of the city for which we are bound must count it as a violation of his revealed will? They replied, The custom of entering the way by taking a shortcut has been going on as a long-standing practice for more than a thousand years and would be ruled as a legal practice by any impartial judge. And besides, they added, as long as we get into the way, what does it matter how we get in? If we're in, we're in. You came into the way through the narrow gate and we came tumbling over the wall and since we're both in, who's to say that your chosen path is better than ours? Christian told them, I walk by the rule of my master. You walk by the rude workings of your own notions. You were condemned as thieves already by the Lord of the way. Therefore, I doubt you will be found as true men at the end of the journey. You came in by yourselves, without his direction, and will go out by yourselves, without his mercy. That's what Esau was doing. He was trying to find a way by himself, and for himself, and it does not work. The only way to the blessed God and to experience the blessing of God is through Jesus Christ, who came to us in our darkness and our depravity, not to judge, but to save us from our sin. So if your life is a mess, if it is a sinful disaster, if you've discovered how exhausting it is to try to fix it yourself, 
if you've thought that churches are places for good people, then please know that the church is a place for the sick. It's a place for the wounded. It's a place for the broken. It's a place for the unrighteous. It is a place for the sinful. If you see something of your own sinful mess and the sinful mess of these lies that we've been looking at, then I am very glad. Because you are in the right place. And from here, there's only one place to turn. And that is to the person of Jesus. You don't need to worm your way in. And you can't try to work your way in either. It's impossible. The kingdom of God is to be received as a gift. Faith is a gift. And we humble ourselves. And we open our hands like little children and we receive it. Knowing again that it is God the Father's good pleasure that he would give us the kingdom. So come to Christ. That's the invitation. It's to come to him. Who is gentle and lowly as Tom prayed and he and he alone will give us rest for our souls, and we will know the blessed God and every blessing that he intends to give us through Jesus Christ. We're going to sing two songs in conclusion, and they're purposefully chosen. The first is somber and sobering to remind us of the cost of this great reversal, and that we would reap what Jesus sowed because he was willing to reap what we sowed. And the second song is one for us to express our gratitude and our joy of the gift that God has given to us in his son. I trust that you're able to sing these as we are led in them.